This week on the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast, we talk Jeremy Cameron and Aaron Norton, debate which rivalry is the league's biggest, take a close look at the stat leaders through seven rounds, and revisit our big calls from preseason. You're listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast. Yes, hello and welcome to the pod for this week. My name is Matt Walsh and joining me to talk all things footy this week is Jake Michaels. How are you going, Jake? Matt, I'm great. How are you? I'm not too bad. Uh, A little bit fresh this morning, but we think it might be a bit of a fresh er morning for uh, our friend over here, Neil Seawang, who (laughs) came in from Ballarat. So it was a bit chilly up there. It wasn't overly warm this morning at about uh, 5.50 when I woke up. No. This will be your first Ballarat winter up there, will it not? Yeah, but being a Hobart boy, I think I'll be okay in the cold. Yeah, it does get a bit of snow, I think, in Ballarat. I've seen a couple of times. Bring it on. I'm a a winter winter man rather than a summer man. I'm a winter man, but a winter (laughs) footy temperature, 10 to 12 degrees, Saturday afternoon (laughs) sort of style. Uh, And joining us from Champion Data is Christian Jolly. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Alrighty, let's get into our first segment, three on three. Seven weeks in, and we already have a runaway leader in the Coleman medal race. Uh, Jeremy Cameron from the GWS Giants has kicked 30 goals already, uh, an average of 4.3 a game. A question I'm going to throw out to the table, is he the league's most valuable player right now? Right now, he kind of has to be. I mean, if you, thir- if you kick 30 goals through seven rounds and the next best goal haul is 17... You kind of have to be, don't you? Especially with scores and and you know the avenues to goal down. Like if you've got someone that can single-handedly win your games by kicking big bags, which he's done a couple of times this year, and he's not a one-dimensional forward as well. He's, he's got to be in the conversation. Yeah, he's kicked thirty percent of GWS's goals for the year, so almost almost a third of the team's scores are just coming from him. Uh, he's also uh, been involved in thirty-five percent of their scoring chains, which is number one in the competition. Which is again a stat that midfielders are usually high up in. Um, but yeah, Cameron, as you as you just said, can get up around the field and find the ball. He's just such a complete um, key forward, isn't he? I mean, he he can take the contested mark. He's very quick and and good on the lead. He's great when it hits the ground as well. And to top it all off, he's probably just about the best set shot for a big man going around. So he looks like he's going to be a runaway winner for for the Coleman medal, unless he gets injured. But could he win the Brownlow? Because he, 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 he seems to be the standout player of the could. league right now. Don't think he will. I mean, we kind of all everyone got carried away with Gorn and Grundy, two Ruckman last year, you know, potentially winning it, and then they sort of didn't really poll as many votes as many people thought. Probably won't. I think the only time he's going to get votes is if he has those big, big six-goal yeah games, and he'll probably get three for that. But I don't think he's going to be getting the ones and twos that will put him up into the sort of high 20s that he probably needs to, to win it. If he keeps ticking over at sort of three to four goals a game, it's not going to be a three-vote game, unfortunately, no, I don't think. don't think so. You've got to kind of have to kick those five or six to really yeah, Which is a bit unfair but for he can. Well, a little bit, because three or four might be a match-winning performance. I yeah. Mean, Aaron Norton kicked five, and that was he was by far the best on the ground. Who can um, who can challenge him for the Coleman medal? Well, no one. I don't well, think. right now he'd have to either miss through injury. suspension or injury. Injury is the only thing that'll stop him right now, unless, well, unless he I mean, whacks he does someone again. Belt people. So, um, <laughs> but but right I'm, now I'm he not, could t- he's got a thirteen goal lead, and we're talking about an era where we're not sco- seeing as many um, goals kicked by players. I mean. He could take the next three weeks off and still be leading it. Probably. Well, you say that scoring is a bit tougher. I mean, remarkably, he could kick a hundred this year as well. That's sort of a forgotten point. Is that thirty through seven games? I mean, it's about a third of the season. About so a third of the season. If he if he make if the Giants make finals and he has a couple more big big bags, you never could, know. We could see it in could September. See some fans running out onto the grand ground final at day. Giants Stadium. <laughs> That'd be something to see. Um, but going from a player who's established and he's now twenty six or so, I think uh, Cameron. To someone who's 19 and had an equally as good game on the weekend, Aaron Norton from the Dogs, nine contested marks, 
uh, kicked five goals, three or five goals, four. So had nine scoring shots, essentially. Is he the best young key position prospect under the age of 22 in the competition, Neil? Yeah, we're talking about Cameron before, and he's the, the key forward in his prime that's playing so well. And, and he looks like his heir apparent has been announced over the weekend. Um, a lot of people were excited about Charlie Curno, um, Harry Mackay, but I think Norton, his potential looks like it's almost untapped. I know our very own draft expert, um, Chris Dorr, when we asked him to redraft the previous five drafts, um, he surprised a few people by putting Norton at number one um, after being picked at number nine in the 2017 draft. But, geez, and he's considering the fact that he was drafted and has predominantly played as a key defender, the fact that he's been thrown forward and he can do that, he's unbelievable. So that was the big thing that stood out to me. Um, so we cover all the junior stuff as well, under-18 championships and all of his waffle games and things like that. Um, one of the biggest translatable skills, I think, from the underage comp to the um, into the AFL is intercept marking. So going the other way, contested marking doesn't always stand up. You've had um, in the past John Patton, Tom Boyd, who just absolutely dominate attack cup contested marking, basically playing as the biggest kids on the field, up forward, just bullying blokes and taking marks. The intercept mark, though, down back is one where it sort of shows you can read the play, read the ball, plus sort of you've got the skill and strength to take those overhead marks. Aaron Norton dominated that. So he took he averaged 3.4 intercept marks in the 27 Waffle League and Colts games we did. So I haven't even looked at championships where he would have averaged another two or three per game. So that just really shows that he's a smart footballer. Correct. And, he, and he'd done that probably his first Waffle game, I think he was either 16 and a half and, or 17. And nearly every game he's played, he's taken multiple uh, intercept marks. So as a junior, we knew he could you know find the ball in the air and take those marks. Um, played in defence last year and you could sort of half see it but you sort of again as a defender it's like maybe three or four years till he really gets that confidence to go for all those marks they put him forward in, in his second year and it just gives him that confidence of alright the ball's yours in the air You talk about smart footballers Jake and you talked about Charlie Kerno, Neil hmm. um, Charlie Kerno, kind of like his brother athlete first and then footballer second whereas I feel someone like Norton is more footballer first and then uh, to say athlete seconds a bit a bit harsh, but he's got that that footy brain that really works quite well. He does. Um, so he's smart. He's got unbelievable sticky hands. That so when he reaches the the ball, he absolutely you know it's like a vice. Um, and Christian has got some really fantastic stats that I'm not going to claim credit for, but I'm just reading now. Looking at the his first thirty games, his contested mark average is three point three per game. The next best in recent history is Jeremy McGovern, which is two. So he's far and away above Jeremy McGovern. The next names on the list are Tom Lynch. So Tom Lynch is uh, third on the list at 1.6. Aaron Norton mm. is at 3.3. He's double Ooh, Tom double. Lynch. Mm. And then the other names in that list are Jeremy Cameron, uh, Darling, uh, Hawkins, Hooker, Candy. That's crazy. A lot of people would say that McGovern's probably the best intercept of the last 10 years. I mm. mean, Well, now that we are a third of the way through the year, it might be an apt time to look back at some of the big calls that we've made in preseason. Out of the, the prelim finalists of last year, who's the most vulnerable, do we think, at this Melbourne. point? Melbourne. I think the Ds, yeah. It's hard to see them replicate. I think, look, Jesse Hogan's a, a big loss uh, in terms of the structure because it allowed Tom McDonald to take possibly the second defender some weeks. Did Melbourne play at their best last year? I feel like the other three can get better. I, I don't know about Melbourne. Uh, this could be a lot of egg on the face, but <laughs> my big call for this year is Mason Cox, by the end of the year, will be regarded as one of the elite key forwards in the league. We can start off with a little call. Gold Coast will win a game this year, um, so I don't know how big a call that is, but I'll, like, I'll actually extend that and say they'll win a game in the first four rounds. Wouldn't it be great if, if, if the Suns won five or six? I'm a big fan of Lockie Neal, and I'm going to go out and say he's going to win the Brownlow this year. 
Uh, my, my big call for the year, I don't think a coach will get fired this year. I really like how we called it a segment for the big calls, and we had Christian come out and say Gold Coast will win one game for the, the biggest year. of calls. <laughs> I think we I think we talked him down as a small call after that. <laughs> we did, um, but one I'd like to sort of touch on first is no coach to be fired this season, Jake. Well, so far so good, but um, I wouldn't be too smiling too much just yet, Matt. Because <laughs> who's Bre- under the most pressure? I think it's pretty clear that Brendan Bolton's under the most pressure, isn't it? I'd say so. I think Brad Scott perhaps before North's win on the weekend was under the, the That's most That's going to buy him a few more weeks. Um, Alan Richardson probably came into the season probably arguably under the most pressure, but yeah. you know, after their first five rounds, you know, he, he's probably going to last the season. So, yeah, Bolton's probably the one, I think. Um, I, can't see, I can't see the Blues acting on him immediately or in, in the... He, he may be under a lot of pressure. During the season. To, yeah, I if, think... If, if he gets moved on... If they happen to be 2-15, two and, two and 15, then maybe... But I don't think anything, certainly anything before mid-year, even sort of rounds 14, 15, I think they'll give him that time because the club seems to have wrapped their arms around him and, and they understand that it's going to be a long process. But yeah, last weekend's performance doesn't help his cause. And I think clubs now are sort of starting to realise after the Damien Hardwick and Nathan Buckley, just give these give coaches a little bit more time and things can happen. I'm not saying Carlton's going to go win the grand final next year, but like, just if you give clubs a little bit more time, coaches a little bit more time to work their magic at a club, then things can start to happen. Uh, you foreshadowed you might have egg on your face with your Mason Cox call. <laughs> it uh, was the biggest of the calls. It, it probably was, in <laughs> fairness to you, and we did call it a big call segment. Uh, look, it, like you said, you did say at the end of the year that Mason Cox would be an elite key forward. Mm-hmm. Is is he on track, do you think? I mean, has he shown mm-hmm. enough to... He hasn't... He hasn't... Doesn't look like he's improved from previous years, and he hasn't had those games out of a box that he showed against Richmond so no I, I think there's a fair bit of egg on the face but there's what there's sort of 16 17 rounds to go plus finals so he may never know he may he may save me by Are the you jumping off that prediction now I'm holding without having any confidence <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Gold Coast have won a game. Uh, they may win five or six, so that seems to be a bit of a tick uh, yeah. for the for the mini call. Yeah, a bit of an easy one, but I think I was just uh, more coming in here and leading into it. I was just kept getting that question all week: is when Gold Coast going to win a game? I can't see Gold Coast winning a game. I was, of course, they will. No, t- I, I can never see a team going zero and twenty-two across the season. Lockie Neal uh, on track. Jake, what do you think? I think he is. Um, you going to stick with your big call? Absolutely. There's only two players in the AFL that are, you know, betting wise, more of a favourite to to win the medal than him right now. He's had a terrific start to, to life at Brisbane. Um, his first three or four rounds were probably stronger than his last three, but um, yeah, I think he's he's been a solid player every single time they've gone out. So all in all, uh, what do we give our pre-season predictions? If we had to give him a mark out of 10, I mean, I think, I think we've done pretty well, all, all things I think considered. I'm the only one that, that might have really... But like you said, it was a, a large call. And I think collectively, the other one that we looked at was, was Melbourne, um, out of the top four teams that... We we all thought that it would be Collingwood, West Coast, Richmond, and Melbourne that would be the the strongest, and can anyone get past them? But Richmond have had their injury issues, and Melbourne have fallen in a heap. Um, aside from their victory on the weekend, which might sort of get their season back on track, but I think we all identified them as the weakest of the the, the so called big mm. four from last year. Still, don't think anyone any one of us had them sort of no. bottom four at any stage. But yeah, they um, probably were never going to be top four. If there was one, well, that was most slip of out. us most of us thought that preseason. You know, adding the the fantastic recruit of Stephen May, who's well, making the news for the wrong reasons at the moment. But thinking that you'd add May and Lever to their key defensive socks by by a certain point this year, but yeah, not looking good. All right, well, we got uh, a huge traditional rivalry uh, this week. A big clash at Adelaide Oval when Adelaide and Port 
clash in the showdown. Guys, I want to ask you this question. Is it the biggest rivalry in footy right now? It's, I'd say yes. I, I, I'll, put my, I'll put my hand up and say I've never been to a showdown, but looking at it from, from a TV perspective, it's, it's must-watch telly. And even when both teams are struggling, it's fantastic. There's always that huge finals-like atmosphere. Um, and both clubs now are on, you know, will they, won't they make finals? So I think they'll be, I think it'll be one of the best games of the season so far. I think you nailed it right there. Whether they're struggling or whether they're top of the table, it's always a big game. And I mean, Carlton and Collingwood's also playing this weekend, and a lot of people. I did not na- foreshadow big traditional rivals, but I'm, I'm not sure you got that one, Jake. <laughs> oh, it was over my head. No, a lot of a lot of people naturally just assume that Carlton Collingwood is the biggest rivalry in football. Um, and you know, it may well. B, if Carlton were a top side at the moment with Collingwood, but they're not at the moment, and it's not going to be as big a game as what it could be. However, you look at the two South Australian clubs, and that's always a big game, no matter where they're, they're yeah. on the ladder. I think as Melburnians, we're probably not qualified enough to answer it. I think if you lived over there in Adelaide, obviously with a two-team town, the lead-up to the game would be just immense, and it'll be starting from you know Monday morning, if not Sunday night. Uh, I, I just can't think as, again, probably because we've got so many teams to cover, and you think of our major newspapers and things like that, I don't think we have any game that's probably going to get five days' worth of coverage. Maybe a Hawthorne-Geelong when they're both flying. Uh, but Adelaide Port, you can just see their, their newspapers, their radio stations and everything just going to be filled with talk of that clash. Is it bigger than West Coast Fremantle? Again, I think Christian said we're probably living in Victoria. We probably uh, we can't really... I'd, I'd put them in the same basket, wouldn't they? I'd assume that the derby would be the same as the showdown. I think there have been more... class Like recently, there have been more classic matches between Adelaide and Port, mm. which have really kind of captured the imagination of fans outside of South Australia. Mm. Uh, whereas sort of Port and... I'm um, sorry, Fremantle and West Coast have... Haven't really had a close game in a while. And probably, probably with the showdown, you got Port Adelaide with 150 years of history. Adelaide coming in, taking their spot in mm. the VFL as, as it was at that stage instead of Port Adelaide. Probably West Coast and Frio don't probably have that long-standing history. The, the one thing I'd like to uh, sort of raise is that I'm not sure that the showdown gets uh, the primetime respect it deserves. They've never played on a Friday night, which is kind of unbelievable. Is that right? They've never, never played on a Friday night. Eight of the last 19 times they've played, it's been a Sunday 440 slot, That's which a shocker. is 42%. And, and these teams have been, at times, flying. I think that's really poor from the AFL because I think I think it sort of speaks to the, how big the games are, that most neutrals would look at that this showdown every year and go, I've got to, if I can, I've got to watch that. You, you don't watch many, you don't pencil in many games as, as a neutral fan on the calendar, and this is one of them. Are they always on free-to-air? Well, they no, wouldn't be. If they're, sun, if they're be Sunday Fox. 440, they're Fox footy game. Looking at the Collingwood Carlton game, though, do you do, do you three Carlton supporters in this room? Do you still look at the um, look at the, the, this game as a huge one, or is, is the rivalry diminished a little bit now? The rivalry is diminished purely, you know, on the back of the fact that Carlton is not a top a strong side at the moment. If Carlton was a top four side with Collingwood right now, there'd be ninety thousand people at this game. But even even then, like as someone who was born in the nineties, uh, Collingwood is not what I would consider Carlton's biggest rival. I think Essendon is Carlton's biggest rival, and by some margin, I think 93, the 99 prelim, um, there have been like three draws over the course of five years in the mid-2000s. Uh, there was a final in 2011. I think Essendon is clearly Carlton's biggest rival of in, in recent times, and, and Collingwood, for sure, is like my old man would say, oh, Collingwood, and oh, Richmond, but not, not these days. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that that's true. How about stat with champion data? It is very much a stats-based game these days, and Champion Data is privy to an insane number of statistics, many of which never really get fed to the public. (laughs) So, Christian, are there any that have caught your eye that might not be doing the rounds at the moment? Um, 
so it's funny that you mentioned that catch your eye. I mean, things catch our eye every day, and it's probably one of those in jokes we have at the office is when we get a query of, is there anything interesting going on, you know, stats-wise this year? It's like, well, where do we start? We cover the whole game. <laughs> it's almost like everything we do is interesting or we wouldn't cover it. Do you know how many stats you... Like, how many, like what is the number of stats you cover? No, as I said, because you can... Add a, ta- add a stat to another stat to another stat. It's almost never-ending. Um, as I said, probably there's probably 100 core key stats that everyone knows. You know That includes smothers, spoils, going into that sort of level. But then starting to look at chain analysis and you know how, how often you have a clearance that goes to another stoppage or a clearance that goes to a turnover. It just keeps going and on and on and on. <laughs> I um, like it. So probably, yeah, <laughs> probably couldn't give you a full count, but that's probably one of our biggest things. We try to say to the clubs that you know, we'll capture everything. Every, every club wants to measure different things. So no club's going to look at our full suite of numbers and sort of get any gauge of that. It's it's We measure everything so clubs can base a game plan around and have it measured. Um, so as you said, yeah, heap of stats and, you know, probably always um, hearing about leading disposal winners, leading kick winners, leading handballs, so that's that sort of stuff. I um, sort of wanted to drill down further and look at some of the other sort of, yeah, peripheral stats that players might be leading and just sort of digging around. One name that uh, jumped out to me was Callum Wilkie. So I could almost run a straw poll and ask the three around the table if you guys know who he plays for. Um, I think if I pass him on the street, I wouldn't wouldn't recognise him. I reckon ninety nine out of hundred people wouldn't recognise him if they pass him. So on the he's street. a he's a mature ranger from the Sandfall, playing with his first year with St Kilda. Yep, that's the one. So he uh, second in North Adelaide's BNF in the Sandfall last year and has been picked up from by St Kilda. Um, he's actually rated as the best kick in the AFL at the moment, um, and that's using kick rating, which is looking at your expected hit like. Basically, what, what you're trying to do with the kick, how hard it is to pull off and how much pressure you're under. So if you use just raw kicking efficiency, it's always going to be the guys that just have easy kicks to the side, short kicks five minutes down the field. They're going to get 100% kicking efficiency. Kick rating takes into account pressure and what you're trying to do. He's actually 13.4% better than uh, competition average for the types of kicks he's performing, which is number one in the comp. Second behind him is Shannon Hearn, who's always up there, and I think most people recognise him as being one of the most uh, the best kicks in the AFL. And third is uh, actually Jeremy Cameron, who we spoke about at the top of the podcast. One of the best all-round users, Jake Michaels. Absolutely. So they're, they're two well-established stars, and this this mature ager who's played what, six or seven games has, has come out and uh, he's hitting targets left, right, and centre. So what a beauty the Saints have got. Yeah, and the other one that he also comes up in, I started to look at a one-on-one contest, which we measure as well. So we sort of have two sides of the one-on-one contest. You've got the offensive player, and that's the team that's kicked it to the one-on-one. They have the offensive player in the contest. The secondary player in that contest is the defender. So when Callum Wilkie is the defender, he's defended 16 one-on-ones this year, and he's only lost one. So basically, that's a loss rate of 6.2%. There's only one player better than him. That's Darcy Gardner, who's lost one from 18. So a loss rate of 5.6%. So even that, I, couple I don't of surprise think... names. Yeah. So, again, so hold on, if we got the best kick, then can you also measure who has, who's the worst kick in I the league? I hope you've got the worst. Yes. Kick, well, then. we do have that. So. Um, yeah, sort of like to keep it a little bit positive, but if you want to go, if you want to go down on a negative track, we can go there. Um, so at negative twenty six percent, it's Andrew Brayshaw at Fremantle. So um, again, being Melburnians and even with a Melbourne sport, I think Angus Brayshaw. Everyone sort of looks at him and thinks that's probably the one biggest weakness of his game. Absolutely. Is his kicking. Yep. Well, his cousin over there in the West has actually got that mantle of at the moment the worst kick in the AFL. And that, the, and both the Brayshaw boys were high draft picks. I think number three, and number two, possibly. So. It's funny that you can be that, that highly rated. And they're, they're good players, but you know, you've know got to be able to kick the ball as well. Yeah, and he's a fair way last two. So second last is Jack Viney at negative 17.4%. Paddy Dow's third at negative, negative 17%. And fourth last is probably the most surprising name for a lot of people is Josh Kelly at negative 15.1%. Oh, that, that can't be right. The guy that everyone refers to as the Rolls-Royce at the Giants. 
Correct. So I think it's he, he's definitely looking at him as a smooth mover. He looks good with ball in hand, but he again, looking over. at the actual so results surprising. of his kicks, he's probably not hitting the target as the often as he, man. as he should be. So, <laughs> well, maybe that's why he re-signed early. He had a look at the stats and thought, <laughs> better sign a contract. <laughs> so a couple of ones. So yeah, that's looking at kicking and ball using. I sort of also looked at um, guys that can win the ball back for their opposition. So we've spoken about turnovers and intercepts in previous weeks. Um, and Port Adelaide actually have two standouts um, in that area. So Darcy Byrne-Jones has actually created 13 scoring shots from his intercepts this year, which is the most in the competition. So, so he's another one that, you know, maybe we're in the, the Victoria bubble. He's another one that you could almost pass him in the supermarket and not be 100% sure that he's an AFL player. Personally, I used to, two years ago, I got him mixed up with Jasper Pittard. You Me too. Couldn't tell the difference between them, um, both of them. But yeah, they're both sort of coming to their own. And as I said, Darcy Byrne-Jones at 13. Second in the competition in that stat is Nick Floston, who's generated 12 scores from his intercepts. And I know this is just one stat, but again, most people you talk to, Nick Floston, All-Australian contender, gets tagged to the end of his name. Darcy Byrne-Jones, I think people would laugh in your face if you sort of attach that tag to him. But again, looking at certain measures, he does sort of stack up well. Um, So that's scoring shots from intercepts. If you look at who's actually generated the most points from intercepts, it's Dan Houston. So just sort of putting that into context, Byrne-Jones... Port Adelaide scored seven goals, six from his uh, intercepts, which is 48 points. Um, so a little bit of accuracy helps Houston, but Port Adelaide scored nine goals, one, 55 points from his intercepts. So Port are only actually fifth in the competition for points for intercepts, but they got the number one guy for scoring shots and the number one guy for total points. So It's really interesting that you you mentioned if, if you had said such and such would could be a potential All-Australian, people would laugh at you. Like, how much of this would be used to determine the All-Australian team? I mean... Because it's pretty clear that we we have in our minds the top guys, and we we see them every week, and we hear the names, and you just you know as you say, Vloston would be way ahead of Burn Jones. But it's like, hang on a minute, they're actually on par with what they're doing. No one just talks about Burn Jones. Um, so yeah, a couple of a couple of other player names I should um, wouldn't mind mentioning is don't know again sitting in champion data, the four walls champion data. We we look at stats all day long, and sort of sometimes don't get surprised by things. But I just wonder if um, James Sicily actually get, gets enough credit. Um, I think he, you know, everyone remembers him as being a bit of a, um annoyance on the football field and can sort of get under your skin and sort of, you know, a couple of um, brain explosions that have seen him rubbed out. But he's actually uh, the second best interceptor in the competition. So Shannon Hearn's leading with 65 intercepts. James Sicily's second with 63. But what Sicily is leading in the competition in is metres gained. Um, and again, it's one of those stats people go, oh, metres gained, it's just, you know, you get the ball, kick it long, you get 50 metres gained. How much does that really matter? Well, we also do effective metres gains, and he's number one in that as well. So no matter which way you look at it, whether he's just moving the ball down the field or effectively moving the ball down the field, he's number one in both stats. Um, yeah, he's a star. Yeah, and he just sort of, as I said, if, if you can win the ball back and, you know, second in the comp for that and move the ball for your team, it's a very valuable player. So I would almost have him as one of the best general defenders in the competition going around at the moment. Effective metres gain is one of Jake's favourite stats, I think. Oh, I think so. I mean, as you say, there's anyone can say, oh, you know, he had a thousand meters gain today. Okay, yeah, but he kicked the ball fifty meters out on the full every time he got it. So, Correct. so effective. Just, I mean, it just adds so much more to it. That's the context. Yeah. The other one that caught my eye: uh, the best center clearance players in the league. Who have we got? Yeah. Uh, so this there? is this is using um, when you're in attendance compared to when you're not. So when uh, Stephen Canelio attends a center bounce for GWS, they're plus twenty eight for clearances. When he's not in there, they're negative twenty four. That's so, not unreal. That's a huge that, that is a still biggest, yet yeah. to sign a contract as well. At the Free chance. agent too. Mm. Without throwing you under the bus, do you know how that compares to like previous seasons? Or um, no, I haven't looked at previous that, seasons. But that just seems enormous. That's, mm. What's yeah. that? A, a 
Like, not very good maths. Like, almost a, a 50, like, more than uh, and 50 yeah, clearance that's turnaround. clearances, yeah. right? That's not point scored. That's no, that's just raw clearance. So, yeah, is, is your team sort of getting getting ball moving maybe first? He, maybe Cameron isn't the, the most valuable player. Maybe, maybe he's not even the most valuable player at his team. Exactly. <laughs> so, I think an interesting one is second. Uh, David Mundy, sort of, you know, in the twilight of his career, but still just has so much uh, influence for Frio and their centre bounces. Plus 21 when he's in there. Negative two when he's absent. So, again, I'm only looking at the guys that are, you know, at least spending... 50% in and out. So, you know, not looking at a guy that's just missed one center bounce and they're negative one. Um, probably the other guy for Ruckman, anyways, Tom Hickey. West Coast are plus 11 for center clearances when he's in there and negative 19 when he's absent. So he's had a um, good debut season with the Eagles. Shrewd acquisition. Mm. Uh, let's move on because it is time for my favorite segment. I could, just before we, we move on to our favorite segment, you could just talk stats all day, couldn't you? There's so many interesting things that us, the fans, or the it media... Flies, even... But flies by that segment. We need a, we yeah. need a longer... <laughs> Separate spin-off podcast. I think so. All right, let's move on. I've had a gutful. What have you had a gutful of, Jake? Well, Collingwood President Eddie Maguire came out uh, overnight and sort of made the claim that Carlton should be looking at Alastair Clarkson to potentially come in and and replace Brendan Bolton, who we touched on earlier in the show, was struggling. He hasn't had a great record at Carlton since he since he joined the club in 2016, I think. My question is, and, and I'm not defending Brendan Bolton because his record is very poor, and it, it has been four years now, and there, while there are a few you know, positive signs, overall it's just not good enough for what you would have expected. But what's Alastair Clarkson going to do? I mean, people talk about this guy like he's the AFL Messiah. Yes, he's won four premierships. I'm not I'm not denying him that. I'm not taking that away from him. But what's he going to do at Carlton realistically? He's going to come to Carlton. He's not going he's going to have this that that same group of players. He's not going to magically transform the Blues into a top 4 side overnight. Let's just take a back step here and just remember when he first uh, went to Hawthorne in 2005, they weren't a top side. They were 5 and 17 that season. I mean, that just shows that he's not... He can't... No one person can come in, no matter what you think of Clarkson, he cannot come in and take the Blues immediately to the next... To to an extraordinary high level. The funny thing about Clarkson, I mean, he's obviously a really good coach, but it seems that if a team has success, the coach gets all the credit. And it seems that if they're not going well, they get all the blame. So it seems to always be... The, the coaches that are the lightning rod to either be, yes, you know, they're the ones that are behind this club's incredible rise or no, they're the, the reason the whole... But it's a more of a whole club. It's a whole... The list management team, the fitness staff, it's... You can't... It's, but these people are forgotten. And this is exactly right. I mean, again, without bashing Clarkson, he's obviously there and he's done his job and he's done a really good job of it. But I mean, why does he only get the credit? No, if you if you saw half the the Hawthorne coaching staff and fitness staff and recruiters and list managers walk down the street, you wouldn't know who they are and you wouldn't give them any credit. But everyone will be quick to say, "Oh, Clarkson's a genius. Clarkson's the greatest coach. Clarkson, Clarkson, Clarkson." So I'll give you some quick names just on that. So I mean, in Clarkson's time at Hawthorne, he's worked with Mark Evans as the football manager for a few years. He's he went to the AFL from Hawthorne, and you know the AFL sort of not poached him as such, but gave him a role straight from Hawthorne at the AFL, and he's gone up and helped out with the Gold Coast. David Rath was Gold a big Coast. with Gold Coast. Sorry, <laughs> I did hear you call possessions and disposals the wrong thing. Yeah, I'm very guilty. If you want to go that. there, uh, David Rath, who was um, a long-term analyst with uh, Alistair Clarkson, his right-hand man in the box, he's now actually at the AFL, sort of doing game analysis. So again, uh, huge raps on him. Chris Fagan was with um, Clarko for a number of years, now coaching Brisbane. Andrew Russell, I don't know many fitness 
bloke's names. I, mm. I remember Dave Misson from a few years ago, but Andrew Russell, obviously very, very highly rated in the industry, um, as you know, crossed a, came across to Carlton uh, at the start of this year. And then two recruits, Chris Pelchin, um, probably when Clarkson first got to the club. And then I think from about 2010 or 11 onwards, Graham Wright's been in charge. And I think some of those names deserve, as Jake's saying, just sort of the the, the nameless or faceless blokes in the background that actually are, yeah, It's not to take anything away from Clarkson and say he's no good. He's obviously doing a, a solid job at Hawthorne for 15 seasons. But it's like, why is it only him? And, and I don't think he's the sole reason, unless you bring that whole Hawthorne coaching staff and that whole Hawthorne group behind the scenes to Carlton, I don't think it's going to have an enormous impact in the short term. You can you can be, you know, a premier coach, but if your list management team selects a bunch of duds to coach, you, you're not going to have a good record. I mean, so. that's the thing. You put Clarkson at, at um, Carlton or Gold Coast and he's going to struggle. And equally, you put Brendan Bolton at Collingwood and Geelong and they're going to, he's going to win games. I mean, it's just the nature of it. Fair to say, I think Eddie Maguire has got the desired... Uh, effect from his uh, piece or his um, his radio show this uh, what was it yesterday yeah because uh, you've well and truly taken the bite there I think Jake and the three votes goes to look in a world of credit to the boys and cliches I think it's nice that we're starting to finally see some personality from the AFL players at the moment uh, some of the haircuts and the facial hair going around at the moment are. So bad that they're good. <laughs> I'm going to throw a couple of names at you guys. Uh, Matt Guelphy, going with the, the bleach blonde. Bad. Bad? Bad. Bad, bad, bad. <laughs> Luke Ryan at the Dockers. Same. Yeah, same. Pretty similar. Darcy Moore's going with the headband and bleach blonde that's get up. Pre- that's pretty bad too. <laughs> <laughs> Braden Maynard and Cam Rayner are rocking sort of... It's kind of like... It would be like if he walked into a salon and said, I need a haircut, and then two minutes in and they're halfway through, he's like... Oh, I'm so go. sorry, mate. I've got to go. <laughs> because they've got the side shaved and, and the hair on the top. I'm not sure what you think of those ones, but are they good or bad? Oh, they're all right. Shockers. Jed Anderson <laughs> and Marley Williams at North, the Man Bun Brothers. Um, Sam Petrescu-Seaton with his long rat tail. Bailey Smith's rocking one of the best mullets I've ever seen. Uh, Jasper Pittard is... Well, he's just Jasper Pittard, I think. I'm not sure how you can describe what he's rolling with. But also a big special mention to some of the moustaches around the league. Uh, Tex, obviously, been uh, one of the mainstays. Uh, Mitch McGovern did the Dr. Evil celebration, looked pretty good with the Mo the other week. Jordan Gallucci, the effort that he's... I, I was admiring Gallucci's on the weekend. Isn't it just perfectly manicured to sort of say, wisp up? Gallucci's and... is the one that you can actually get a comb through. And <laughs> oh, you can comb that out. Just beautiful. And Joe Danaher has sort of progressed from patchy little schoolboy mode or something a bit more <laughs> solid these days. So, look, honestly, I'm all for a bit of personality in footy. And, uh, look, hairstyles and moustaches... Not everyone might be a fan, but I'm a big fan, so let's you, tick it you're off. You're not a fan of credit to the boys, are you? No, I don't like cliches in footy. I, I want to see someone do the full Dennis Rodman and come come to a game with crazy hair and earrings and, and whatnot. Well, I mean, it's not a new thing. Like, obviously, back in the 80s, you had some of the, the wackiest haircuts you could see. I mean, the mullet making a comeback is kind of or cool Or a funky well. miller with a really bright oh, blue hair. We haven't seen like a player with, with dyed hair, like dyed coloured hair. I'd really what, like to see that. What's the biggest statement? Bleaching your hair like Guelphy or getting the real uh, fluoro boots? Oh, the hair. Surely yeah, he lost yeah, a bet. Every, everyone's got fluoro boots now. They're, yeah, they're, he they're had to have lost a bet. I, I can't see why you'd walk into a salon or ask the missus at home and say, I really want you to just go blonde. The entire thing. Blonde. Give blonde me the Luke Ryan. <laughs> Give me the Luke Ryan. Uh, we are, of course, here for footytips.com.au where you can tip with or against your family and friends. Neil, I know you've got uh, seen some interesting stats from the footy tips database. Yeah, so round, round six, the previous round, it was um, interesting. A lot of people... Um, 
got their got their seasons back on track. It was an easier round, and I think a lot of people thought that the year was settling a little bit. Uh, and this this previous round has just thrown thrown blown up everything again. So there was only nine perfect rounds um, across the whole Footy Tips database. Um, whereas previous um, the previous weekend it was 333. So everyone struggled last week. Don't feel bad if you had a shocker. Um, and uh, looking ahead to this week, there's a few, um, I guess, a few little surprises. Um, I know the Swans have struggled at home um, recently, but the 24% of tipsters are, are backing the Swans. Um, and the Bombers, who turned up an absolute shocker against the Cats, have been heavily backed. So they're at 76%. So that's, an, that's a, I guess, a, a little bit of a surprise. Um, and, and the other one, everyone's um, really going hard on the Dogs to beat the Lions, even though the Dogs have they had the, a great win on the weekend. Um, but the Lions are, are really doing well as well. It's uh, almost a 60-40 split for the Dogs against the Lions. So a few early indications um, that have caught my eye there. How are the Blues looking this week? Uh, no. Not a lot of love? <laughs> You're probably not going to be surprised, but it's a 2% uh, backing for the Blues. Is that the lowest so, of the round? Without a doubt. Although, and hang on. Just us three? <laughs> three. I was, was going to say, that's, that's 2% of people misclicking. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. 3% for North against Geelong. I would have thought maybe more might back North. I would them. love to, to know how many of that 2% are Carlton supporters. It have to be yeah. all of them. You could not possibly think Carlton's going to win that game. Yeah. Maybe we'll set that as a task for our boffins at footy tips next week. Um <laughs> Any more before we uh, move yeah, on, Neil? The other one that I reckon it's the hardest game to tip of the round is Freo versus Richmond in Perth. Um, and somewhat surprisingly, maybe not, I don't know, but 70% are going for Freo there. Mm, the Jekyll and Hyde team of mm. the competition. Uh, speaking of tipping, do we have an upset and a certainty uh, this week, Neil? Well, I think, from you. I think most people would put the Pies as absolute certainties against Carlton. I think, considering how poorly Carlton played, I'd like to see them respond, but I think the Pies will win that by 10 goals plus. My upset would be St Kilda at home against West Coast. St Kilda are outsiders there. I think the Eagles are only just going, and, and the Saints can play some good footy. That's interesting. Christian? Well, my certainty, yeah, Collingwood. Just moved right on from that. And same <laughs> as Neil. I think, yeah, I don't think Carlton get you close. My outsider actually put two question marks around it, but Neil just confirmed it for me. I had Richmond as my outsider, and... Um, um, they're betting. They're outside in the betting and outside in the tipping. So I'll stick with them. But yeah, I can't can't understand how they're outside. Yeah, I thought that'd be a fifty fifty game. Oh, look, I've got to steer away from Collingwood. Then I'll go for something different. I think Geelong. I think Geelong's been good. Um, I actually don't expect Dangerfield to play this week, but he may well. Um, and North Melbourne will probably come crashing back down after a really easy um, win over the Blues. Um, in terms of an upset, I think Port Adelaide can beat Adelaide. Um, mm. I think those games are always a bit 50-50 and Port Adelaide, the, the outsider at the moment, um, didn't play well against Collingwood, but they've got a nice uh, break to freshen up. And I think that the game, the Adelaide game against Fremantle last week will have taken a lot out of them, that sort of real scrappy, a bit of a scrap, scrappy game. So, um, yeah, Port Adelaide for me. I agree with you on the Geelong front. They're just rolling along. So I think uh, they'll continue their winning form over North, who kind of played their backs to the wall game against the Blues, I feel. Um, probably a little bit emotional. Uh, so I'm not too sure if they can back it up. Uh, as for my upset, I think Brisbane are outsiders against the Dogs down here at Marvel Stadium. Uh, I like the the Brisbane after they sort of got whacked for not being hard enough at the contest a few weeks ago against the Pies and the uh, Bombers. They came out and really monstered uh, Sydney uh, up at the Gabba so I mm. think uh, they'll continue their winning ways uh, we are sort of running short on time but before we go please uh, remember to rate us five stars and leave us a glowing review we do read the reviews or give us some nice um, 
criticism, we can we can pay attention to that or as well. Or not nice criticism. <laughs> uh, yes, we are also on uh, Twitter at Footy Tips, uh, so you can tweet us uh, anything you like. Uh, but we will speak to you in the next one. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast.